Rewind of the Living Dead is brought to you by Germ Death Hand Sanitizer. The only hand sanitizer with 66.6% ethyl alcohol kills 99.9% of germs and smells real good doing it too. So you can check them out at germdeath.com. Visit them at Facebook and Instagram at germdeath. Rewind of the Living Dead is also brought to you by reanimatedrecords.com, your place for movies. That's Blu-rays, DVDs, VHS tapes, they got that. There's music, vinyl, CDs, cassette tapes, you name it, they got it. Vintage, new, used, all that kind of cool stuff. Cool t-shirts from bands, from horror films, posters, uh, action figures, you name it, they got it at reanimatedrecords.com. Fair warning, Rewind of the Living Dead is a review show, so spoilers are ahead. It was over a decade ago when director Edgar Wright was gifted a book called Hammer Glamour, classic images from the archive of Hammer Films that showcased the iconic women from the studio's vast history, except this wasn't some glossy coffee table book. Instead, Wright was struck by the sheer number of those women whose careers were cut short or lives that ended tragically. Combined with his own history for a certain neighborhood in North London, Wright started to get an idea for a story that would document the hardships about a young ingenue who discovers the underbelly of the entertainment industry when she's trying to make it big. Wright eventually found the actress he wanted to star in the film after he watched Anya Taylor-Joy in her breakout role in Robert Eggers' The Witch, but plans to shoot the movie were soon complicated by a number of outside factors and other projects. When Wright finally decided to revisit the project, he changed the role that Joy would play while also casting Thomasine McKenzie, who just found success in her breakout role in Jojo Rabbit. The movie follows an ambitious young girl moving to London for the first time as she seeks to become a fashion designer, but dreams about a 1960s starlet attempting to make it big soon turn to nightmares that don't go away when she opens her eyes. What brings you down then? I'm studying London College of Fashion. Right, Room is on the top floor. It's perfect. I love it. Mine is not. I could live any place in any time I'd live here. In London. In the 60s, there was a girl. And you are? Sandy. <laughs> the murder last night, but you believe this was a vision from the past. The guy that killed her is still out there. I have to stop him. Where are you going? I know what you did. I've done a lot of things. You're gonna have to be more specific, love. In the latest episode of Rewind of the Living Dead, we're going to put on a Petula Clark record and dream of 1960s London as we review the new film, Last Night in Soho.
Welcome back to Rwanda's Living Dead. I am Damon Martin. And I'm Patrick Guerra. And Patrick, this week we are going to be talking about a brand new movie by the title of Last Night in Soho by the great Edgar Wright, who is a director that I think you and I are both fans of. I know I'm a fan of, I'm pretty sure you're a fan of as well. Huge, huge fan of Edgar Wright. Big, big time. Um, Edgar Wright's a special director. Um, there, I think there are a very few directors that you can say have uh, the auteurship uh, these days. Edgar Wright is amongst them. When he puts a movie out, it's very special. It's very different. It's always going to uh, dazzle you. Um, there's a lot of visual delight in it. And he's an incredibly creative storyteller using every single element of cinema to tell you that story, the visuals, the sound, the music, the camera movement, the acting, the quirkiness, it's all there. Edgar Wright can do it all. I couldn't praise this guy more. I mean, he really is an, a, a very, very high level director. And Damon, he directed uh, what we have, I think one of the movies that we've mentioned the most on this podcast outside of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Nightmare on Elm Street, he directed Shaun of the Dead, which we have used time and time again as a template for great comedy horror um, and honestly a, a very, very great and memorable one of the best zombie movies of all time. Am I crazy? No, no, absolutely. It's phenomenal. And, you know, Edgar Wright is, is I always call him the British Tarantino. You know, I kind of consider him in that realm. I mean, I've, 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 I've documented many times on this show my, you know, love affair with Quentin Tarantino and his movies. He is my favorite director. Uh, Edgar Wright and Edgar and, and Quentin are, you know, good friends. So it kind of stands to reason. But I consider Edgar Wright kind of the British Tarantino. You know, he has his own style about things. He has his own way of doing movies. He's very creative in the way he does his movies. His originality always blows me away. Uh, his directing is great. His choice in actors, and very much like Tarantino, he tends to work with a lot of the same people, which I think. I know some people find that as like a crush for a director that, you know, you always work with the same cast or a lot of the same cast. I actually find that uh, brilliant in a lot of ways because you tend to, once you, once you start to build that relationship with an actor or an actress, you really start to get better performances out of them. And then they know better how to make you, they know how to make you a better director uh, in my opinion. So I like that he works with some of the same people in his movies and uh, I love Edgar Wright. Now I'm putting you on the spot here. Patrick let's take last night in Soho out of the conversation because we're just now reviewing it what is your favorite Edgar Wright movie Scott Pilgrim versus the world right okay is that is that the name of that movie yeah Scott Pilgrim yeah that's, that's it that's I would just it. call it Scott Pilgrim so I don't actually know the full title of the movie <laughs> Yeah, that's it. I saw that in the theater when it came out. I actually, at that uh, point, at that point I did. At that point, I don't even know if I knew it was an Edgar Wright movie, because that, of course, is an adaptation. It's a comic book first uh, that was made into a movie. But yeah, that's a, that's a phenomenal movie and a really fun original. Like, when you talk about comic book movies, that is kind of on its own category in a way. I think people forget that it's even a comic book movie. They don't, because it, it feels like such an Edgar Wright movie. Um, first before anything else, but I mean, I'm, and I've never read Scott Pilgrim. Did you? Not until after seeing the movie, I saw the movie and okay. then I read a couple of the, a couple of the graphic novels there. It's not, it's kind of, I don't, I'm not going to get into the whole Scott Pilgrim thing, but it's not, it's not a traditional comic book. Uh, but yeah, I read a couple of them afterwards cause I was curious what it was about because I wasn't familiar with it outside. I knew it was a comic, but I didn't know it very well. So yeah, I like Scott, Scott Pilgrim. Honestly, Shaun of the Dead is, is it's hard not to pick that just because I've seen yeah. it so many times and I, I enjoy it. But I'll be honest, I think my favorite 
Edgar Wright movie, honestly, is Baby Driver. Uh, wow. I freaking love that movie, man. I am a, I am a big heist movie fan uh heat heat is probably top five all time for me uh the town i love the town i am i am a fan of heist movies okay and baby driver is phenomenal the soundtrack i mean literally the first time i saw it i ran out the next day and bought the vinyl soundtrack like i yeah. love that soundtrack i love the way that edgar wright very much like tarantino incorporates music into his films in such a big way so i loved everything about baby driver it introduced so many different elements uh it, it made, you know, Jamie Foxx a villain, which was interesting. Yeah. Uh, again, and, and, you know, again, you know, there's... Oh, you there's, didn't like Jamie Foxx's Electro? Come on. I try to forget that exists. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, I love Baby Driver. So if I had, I, as, much as, I, as much as I love Shaun of the Dead, and I do love Shaun of the Dead, I, I actually, I think I'd have to tip my cap to Baby Driver. I think any three of those are a solid, solid pick for him. It's And it's kind of crazy because I think Shaun of the Dead's, I think, his breakout movie. I don't know that it's his very first movie, but it's certainly his breakout film. It's so good. It I is. mean, it's airtight. Uh, it's airtight as a zombie movie. It's airtight as a comedy. It's airtight in its drama. Um, you know, it made Simon Pegg and Nick Frost like a, a comedic duo that you must have. Um, I, I mean – we, I guess we could do an Edgar Wright podcast if we wanted to, but the truth is, Damon, we are here tonight to talk about Last Night in Soho, his very latest, and possibly his greatest. I really, really, really enjoyed it. That's like a full spoiler right off the top. That's not why we're here, though. We're yeah. here to talk about the horror movie, Last Night in Soho, which, Damon, we are, are we skirting a line just a little bit? Is this truly a horror film? I think it is. I know you think it is. Let's talk about, but let's talk a little bit about the plot right off the top to get into it because I don't know that this is exactly a horror film, but when it's a horror film, it's all it's all in as a horror film. It's that's kind of weird to say, but you, do you know what I'm getting at? No, there? I, I totally understand because there's a lot of this movie that isn't a horror movie. Uh, yeah. It's not at all. It's it's very much a coming of age drama uh you know kind of a teen drama in a way i, I don't know really better you know better way i mean there's there's maybe college drama college maybe. drama there's mental health in there i mean that's a you know, little bit a little bit of that uh uh what movie am i think what's the movie what, the angelina jolie movie um girl interrupted yes girl interrupted a little bit of that yeah. you know a little taste of that in there like there's so there's a lot of different elements to this movie you can't really pigeonhole it and say it's one thing or another no, you can't. And that's kind of the cool thing about all Edgar Wright movies is that they are completely rich and full. When I think about Baby Driver, like it is a comedy. It is an action. It is a heist movie. It's a drama. It's like pretty intense. It has it has deep thriller elements. That's what you get with Last Night in Soho. You get a lot of everything. First of all, it's and in the beginning, it's decidedly a love letter to late 60s English cinema. Like that's so clear. The language of the film in the beginning, there's there's so there's more grain in the in the in the film quality, or or you know I'm sure it was shot digitally, but they sort of made it a, a feel like a '60s grainy. Um, uh, the the lighting, the camera movement in most of the movie has got that late '60s vibe to it. But I think about when our our lead character um, Ellie, played by Thomas and McKenzie, who's a fantastic actor in her own right. Um, that that kind of her initial like whirlwind uh, into into South uh, uh, South London, North uh, London, come, North London. No, she's from South. Oh London yeah, I'm sorry, North London Johnny's to South. Yeah, I say yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. I say, yeah. She 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 journeys from from the countryside to South London, so she's this country girl in the city, and it's very much that vibe that I'm gonna make it after all, <laughs> and like 
and there and and she's kind of dazzled by by the fast moving city that she's uh, that she's in. I actually forgot while I was watching that when she gets to the city, it was actually like modern era that it was like 2020 in that film. Like it still felt like the, I was like, Oh, this is the 1960s. That's how like ingrained that 1960s vibe was in the film. It turns out the girl is not from the 1960s. She's from the, the now, but she has a, a deep love and adoration for the nine, everything 1960s. It, it invokes, uh, you know, a lot of her, it influences a lot of her fashion and all that stuff. So that 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 kind of that first 15 minutes to 20 minutes of world building has this really cool late 60s vibe to it that is that is just like to me turned to 11 and and is perfected by Edgar Wright's uh, directing abilities. Yeah. So to get into a little bit of the plot, and this is not spoiler territory just yet, but essentially the plot starts out with a young girl named Ellie. She lives in kind of this like kind of like the 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 country, so to speak, of, of England. She does not live near the city. She's only been to London once when she was a child. She lives with her grandmother uh, because her mother, uh, you know, suffered mental health issues and she committed suicide when this girl was seven years old. Her mother was a seamstress. Her her, her mother, her grandmother is a seamstress. So, you know, fashion, design, things like that's kind of in her blood. And so she uh, gets a, uh, a scholarship to attend the, uh, the London Fashion Institute. I can't remember the exact name of the school, but uh, they are Art Institute of London, whatever. And so she's going down there basically by herself for the first time ever to pursue this dream of being a fashion designer. And when she gets to London, she gets this neighborhood uh, that is known as Soho. It's uh, it's it's a much different world than anything she's ever experienced before. And, and again, the first 20 minutes feel very much like a coming of age uh, teenage movie. When she gets there, she meets her, you know, her roommate who is kind of like, you know, very, you know, outward, outward going, you know, very, uh, very, very much an extrovert, let's say that. Uh, and, and she's kind of out of her element. She's not kind of, she's definitely out of her element. She's trying to find a way to fit in, but she's not fitting in. And so it's a bit of that, you know, if you, I know this is a terrible comparison, Patrick, but I don't know why this probably just popped my, if you remember, do you remember the movie loser from like the late nineties, early two thousands with Jason Biggs? You remember that movie? Uh, I think uh, it was, no, I can't say that I know much of the catalog of Jason Biggs. No offense. Yes, I just, uh, I yeah. know him. I know him from like saving Silverman and American pie. It That's was after it. it was after American pie pie but it's very much in the same vein where a kid kind of you know grows up in like nebraska and he gets a scholarship to go to nyu uh, and he goes to nyu and he's just like you know, he's completely out of his element like he doesn't fit in his roommates are assholes like it's just a really like, he just he's he struggles you know he's struggling to like trying to find yeah. his place in, in in this world uh it's a comedy anyways kind of like that like where this girl is you know she wants to fit in but she doesn't fit in and so she's kind of feels like an outsider and so she ends up moving out of the student dorm and finds this little flat you know nearby campus to move into uh it's like a one room you know kind of apartment on top of a of a house and that's where uh she meets the landlady uh mrs collins or Ms. collins and she moves into this house and that's where her visions of 1960s london begin now this is all the the, the divisions of 1960s london we get that from the trailer you see where suddenly she goes there she gets she goes to sleep and then suddenly she's seeing herself in the eyes of this 1960s ingenue played by the great anya taylor joy and so that's kind of where our story picks up and that's where uh the real the, the real layers start to unfold in this movie yeah, and I think that's where you can start to sort of get the supernatural vibe uh, when you can start saying, okay, this is leaning towards horror. Before that, it's very much a fish-out-of-water story. 
and then that these these visions take place. Now there's an allusion to those visions, like in the opening frames of the movie. She does see a vision of her mom briefly, so you realize that she can do that. So it doesn't come to you out of nowhere, and I don't think that's a major spoiler of any sort. Um, it's just that she can, you know, it, they establish it, so it doesn't kind of throw you off when when that stuff starts taking place. And that is, to me, where the movie starts to get a little unsafe. And that's where I think it's fair to call it a horror film, even though it's not. It will get crazier. We'll get into that in the spoiler section. Yeah. It will get crazier. It will get decidedly horror at times. But this is a movie that is not a horror movie until it very much is one. Yeah, it's it's funny because if you sat down and just watched, let's say, the first half hour of this movie and stopped, you would be like, what are you talking about? There's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> there's not remotely anything scary or, or even supernatural or anything. Like, it's just a girl. You almost think she's kind of daydreaming, you know, like she's like she's dreaming. But like that, you know, she's dreaming of, of a world where she because she grew up on 1960s records and, you know, she still has a vinyl record player and she very much kind of lives in that world in her own head. And so you kind of think that this is just a girl who's kind of a, a fish out of water, as you mentioned, who's fantasizing about, you know, being in a different place where she would have fit in. You know, she she kind of pictures herself as a 1960s girl. And so when she, you know, kind of wakes herself up into this young starlet who's trying to make her own way in the entertainment industry in 1960s London, she's just kind of fitting in. And, and at that point, when you're watching the movie, you're kind of thinking, okay, this is just very much like a fantasy. Like this is just her fantasy of what she wishes would be her life. What would be her perfect, you know, perfect time where she had been born. There's a lot of people who say that, you know, like I wish I had been born in the 1960s. I, I was, mm -hmm. I was made for the fifties, whatever the case may be. That's very much Ellie. She feels like she should have been born in the sixties. So for the first 30 to 35 minutes of the movie that's all you're taking and when she's actually living in the the character sandy played by anya taylor joy uh is sandy and again this isn't this isn't spoiler territory this is all things you can pick up from the trailer sandy is a, is a young girl growing up in london who wants to be a singer she wants to be an entertainer and so she's trying to get her way into that club scene to become a singer, become an entertainer. And initially Ellie is just blown away and, and, and living vicariously through her dreams of this woman named Sandy. She starts designing clothes that look like what Sandy wears. And you see in the trailer, she changes her hair to look like Sandy, uh, mm -hmm. the blonde, you know, the blonde, the blonde that Anya Taylor joy has in the movie. So it, at the beginning of the movie, the very start of the movie, it's very much just her living out her fantasy of where she believes she should have been born. But then, Damon, things take a terrible twist, and we'll get more into that in the spoiler section. But, uh, yeah, there, there is this – you know, I heard a lot, and I, I think for, for the hardcore cinephiles in our audience, you, you, you kind of do a little bit of pre-research, if you will, or listen to some interviews. I, listen, I happen to listen to a podcast – called Happy Sacked and Fused with Josh Horowitz, who's a guy I, I worked with for many years, and he has a great podcast, talks to everybody. And, he, and I listened to the podcast with him and Edgar Wright, and Edgar made it very clear that Dario Argento was a massive influence stylistically on this film, and the trailer will tell you all of that. You don't, I don't, uh, I'm not spoiling the movie to tell you that there is a a specific Argento bend to this movie, and that's right up Horror Alley. I mean, it really is. And Argento movies aren't like in-your-face horror until they are. That's kind of how Argento movies tend to roll. And uh, and it was to me, it was very reminiscent of like Suspiria. So it's this girl again. That's the same story in Suspiria. Fish out of water. Some she's somewhere new. She's she's the oddball out. 
And uh, and I think about that shift when when Ellie is basically bullied out of the dorms. I think that her her uh, her roommate uh, Jacosta, I think, is what she goes by. Yeah, yeah. Jacosta Jacosta um, kind of bullies her a little bit. Like she's not like I, I appreciate this about Edgar Wright drawing these characters. She make he makes it clear that Jacosta, while she is bullying Ellie. She does it sort of as a defense mechanism because she herself is clearly very insecure. This is high level like character work and directing work to not just like flatly villainize and make her super one dimensional. Um, but I digress. Uh, essentially, that that bullies Ellie, that relationship bullies Ellie out of the dorms very quickly. And in a very Suspiria like way, the color tone shifts to this drabness when she moves into that flat that you're talking about. There's like a drabness, there's more shadows, there's more darkness. Um, the color palette switches to a little bit more of a desaturated look for a moment. And then when she goes into the 1960s fantasies or, or visions or whatever it is she's having, it goes like full blown Argento, full blown Suspiria, mirror play, um, like highlights of uh, deep reds and deep greens and deep purples and deep yellows and and high contrast lighting and and super stylized camera movement and you know Dutch angles and all this crazy stuff, extreme close ups. It you're you're in an Argento movie for for a great portion of this film, and even even when the horror elements aren't sticking them sticking uh, them right, he's not sticking horror or horror elements right in your face. You're still getting that Argento vibe that I really really dug, and I mean I, I'm I, I won't pretend to call myself a giallo expert far from it but i do appreciate the visual style of those movies and imagine handing that style over to a master director like edgar wright and you get something that is just like visually and emotionally delicious yeah it's funny you say that because i read a couple interviews much like yourself doing the research on this i read a couple interviews where people basically immediately brought up giallo to him and he's just like you know and he talked about you know suspiria he talked about uh repulsion by roman polanski you know some of the movies that kind of influenced him and, and when he you know when he started this film he talked about like he handed out a list of, I think, like 50 movies to his main cast, Anya Taylor-Joy to Thomas and McKenzie and, and Matt Smith, and like basically like a homework list to watch, you know, what they could watch. And, and, and a lot of the inspiration for this movie for him came from his own soundtrack, which, you know, so much of that makes it into the movie. Uh, and you talk about the color palette, which, you know, I know that's, that's kind of a, gen I know that's, a lot of people say it's a generic way to talk about, you know, what, um, Argento does because of course Argento goes much deeper than that but it's easy to recognize it by that you know what I mean it's very easy mm -hmm. to recognize by the color palette I, you know, we talked about this in the past another movie that does that a lot is is Michael Mann's Manhunter you know he when he changes yeah. the color palette in that movie from you know a, a, a dark blue to a green to a red it changes the emotion the tone the 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 um uh, the fervor of the movie, so to speak. And so it's very much like that. And Argento is kind of the master of that. You know, that, that's what he's yeah. known for. And and I've said on this podcast before, I'm not the biggest Italian horror fan outside of the few that I really like. Now, the few that I really like from Argento and a couple other guys, uh, I really do like them. I'm just not a, a gigantic fan of the genre in general. But that being said, I can appreciate the filmmaking of it all because what 
what Argento and, and the Giallo films have done is they influence a lot of my favorite directors. I think there's a big influence on David Lynch, uh, who is one of my yeah. favorite directors. And of course there is a big influence here in Edgar Wright. And it's so striking and so visually appealing, but that's, that doesn't even go that, that almost, that almost sells short how connected a film like this, the, the, the thread, the connective thread, so to speak of a film like this to, Argento's movies to some of the best Jello films out there because it goes deeper than just what we're talking about the color palettes. I mean, there's so many scenes where the visuals are so striking uh, from the initial dream sequences to what we will get into with the nightmare sequences, which are very, very Argento uh, and, and so stylized and wonderful, but also terrifying which is where this slips into horror movie territory yeah and i I think it's important to note like you know you're talking about yes uh, when everyone mentions like giallo and argento they mention the the visual style well what does the visual style do it conveys emotion that isn't quite there yet so in in those early moments and a lot of that you see in the trailer the early moments where ellie is uh is fantasizing or is having this vision of being in the 60s um, in the shoes of Sandy, this this ingenue, um, that color play, the mirror play, the reflection play, all creates this this very important little sense of dread, which we talk about all the time on this show. You don't feel safe in those moments, and it it feels dangerous for Ellie, even though she's in this fantasy, even though she's uh, enjoying herself and enjoying what she's seeing and what's taking place, and and living living through by vicariously through this uh, this woman, Sandy, there's still uh, an, an element of danger and it's conveyed through the visual style. And that's that's what's so great about uh, the best Argento films. And that's what's incredibly great about uh, Last Night in Soho. Yeah. So now with that said, Patrick, I feel like we got to get into spoiler territory yeah, because time. because when we talk about the horror elements, we're going to start spoiling. So uh, let's just be you know be clear. If you haven't seen Last Night in Soho, I think you can tell by our early part of our podcast. You and I would both recommend going to see it. Uh, not to bury the lead on our final you know our categories or anything, but I really enjoyed this movie, so I would say go out and see it. Uh, if you oh, have yeah. seen it, stick around. Or again, if you just again, I'm not. I weirdly, I'm not a person who minds spoilers. I don't really care. I still could enjoy a movie even if I know what's going to happen. I, you know, I I don't I don't get freaked out by things like that. I kind of enjoy. Uh, you know, I don't I don't I don't have like a, a stigma with with certain spoilers. So uh, here we go. We're going to get into spoiler territory now, and, and that's where we really do get in the horror of this movie, Patrick. Oh yeah, no things get crazy, and and. It's balanced on a few different levels. There's a few very important themes that I think move through this movie. Now, um, now that we're in spoiler terror, we can, territory, we can talk about as Ellie continues to descend into these fantasies night after night, uh, something is revealed to her, and that is that the dream that Sandy had in the 1960s of becoming this uh, this great singer-slash-actress-entertainer, um, the reality was that this very villainous uh, uh, young man played by Matt Smith, known as Jack, uh, takes her and exploits her, exploits this girl Sandy, and uh, and becomes her pimp. And that gets very dark. It gets very dark at that point, and I think it examines the themes of, um, you know, exploitation of women, 
um, it, it starts to on on Ellie's side of things as as this is unfolding in front of her, she's starting to lose grip of reality, and it's something that has kind of been sitting in the back of her head that whole time. Uh, to me, Damon, I think that the idea of like mental illness was coming through really strong. What what kind of vibes were you getting off that? Yeah, it was really apparent when you when you hear her talk about her mother, you know, which was you know kind of a sad story, you know, almost in a similar way. She went to London. Uh, we don't know exactly what happened to her, but it sounds like maybe she got taken advantage of something bad happened to her and then she ends mm -hmm. up committing suicide. And so that kind of haunts, you know, uh, Ellie throughout her entire life. And, and it, you know, she care and you would carry that. I mean, understandably, you undercarry that. And again, uh, the mental health aspect of that. And then when her nightmares start bleeding into the day, that's really where, you know, you start. She starts questioning and you start questioning what is she seeing and how is she seeing it? And, and is this part of her kind of unknown ability to see things that aren't there? Like we talk about, you know, she sees her mother in the mirror at the beginning of the movie. And, and even her grandmother says that to her at the beginning. Like, is your mom there? You know, that kind of thing. Like, it's mm -hmm. almost like a known quantity, almost like, you know, Danny in The Shining. Like, it's a known quantity to certain people that, like, he has this ability. You know, right. her grandmother acknowledges that Ellie can see her mother, but we don't know still even deep, deep into this movie, is this her ability or is this her own mind playing games with her? Uh, and that makes it that much scarier to me because, you know, she starts to question her own sanity in a way while, you know, voraciously trying to figure out what happened after realizing, and this is a major spoiler, in her one of her most vivid dreams, she sees Jack kill Sandy. And so then she becomes quite obsessed with solving Sandy's murder and and she wants to give justice to Sandy this girl who was you know stars in her eyes and she wanted to become a, a singer and an entertainer and and the world the entertainment world the underbelly world of London kind of chewed her up and spit her back out again and you know the guy who was supposed to help her dreams become true ends up you know basically becoming her boyfriend and then her manager and then her pimp and she literally becomes a prostitute and there's this really tragically sad scene which might be my favorite and also my when i say least favorite i mean just the most heartbreaking scene yeah. of the entire film is when she's sitting in this booth at this bar visiting with various Johns who are coming in to, you know, essentially pay for her to have sex with them. And she keeps introducing herself in different variations. She says, Oh, my name is Sandy. And they're all saying the same thing. Oh, that's a beautiful name. And then she's like, Oh, my name is Alex. Cause her real name is Alexandria. And so she's like, I'm Alex. I'm Alex. You know, I'm, I'm Alexi. I'm this, I'm that. She keeps changing her name and every single guy that just, you know, essentially is going to pay to have their night with her is saying, Oh, that's such a beautiful name. And it's just yeah. a really, haunting disturbing scene because you see this girl who who had so much promise and, and this just really infectious smile at the beginning it all fades away it all mm -hmm. goes away and that's all gone by this moment and it's really really haunting yeah you you, you see all that beautiful life and light kind of like fading from her you know time after time she's getting worn down by this really dark and and dreary life that she is now sucked into and uh and it's dark and it's upsetting and uh and that you know that that's that theme of exploitation that i that i was talking about how it kind of kills the spirit and boy you know talk about handling that in a way that is i, I don't know if tasteful is the right word but you know what i mean it it, it the way that that Edgar portrays it doesn't feel exploitative. It's not, it's not, um, 
you know, it's not overtly sexual or anything like that in those moments. It's it's the opposite. It's sort of showing how, um, you know, how it's how it's killing her, how it's it's killing her before it literally kills her at some point because she's had enough. And Matt, uh, Jack, excuse me, is, um, you know, he's he's rather villainous. She probably wants out of the life. And Ellie sees uh, sees her murder at the hands of Jack and a, a rather graphic murder. And then from that point on, it sort of turns into like an American werewolf in London almost, where now she's seeing Sandy as this stabbed victim and 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 that panic sets in and that that idea of I gotta find the killer or am I going crazy? And of course, like the London police don't believe her, but there's the other theme that starts to pop up is the idea of silenced voices, right? There she comes to them with this panic about a possible cold case from the 60s, and they're like, okay, it seems like you might be a little crazy. You're new here, London's wild. Um, so you know, maybe you're maybe you're a little off your rocker. That theme of silence voices transfers over to Ellie, and then and, and then you start thinking about well, her mom suffered this stuff. There's like this other theme of uh, generational trauma, inherited trauma, like that's coming through, and it's coming through very strong. These are strong themes that come through in this movie. Um, and, and then back to the mental illness, like you, she really starts to descend, and she doesn't know who to trust. And uh, and 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 the and she's scared to go to sleep because the 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 dreams are getting crazier. And now she's starting to see like beasts, you know, like these 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 faceless men, um, you know, that are just look horrific, you know. And you wonder, you don't, and you don't know as the audience member, is this her seeing a vision or is this her mind collapsing from some sort of inherited trauma? So that just that element of itself in and of itself creates a lot of anxiety, a lot of dread. I would imagine it's pretty triggering for people who suffer these kind of abuses. Um, but it's all done in such an incredibly visually rich style and tastefully done, I might add. Yeah, very, very much so. And, and again, there's no perfect right or wrong way to, you know, talk about this kind of subject matter or, or to deal with this kind of subject matter. You know, I used to watch a show on HBO called The Deuce, uh, which I really, really enjoyed. And it was... You know, really, you know, there there was a lot of stuff in that show that was hard to watch. It was basically about, you know, the early, like, 70s going into the 80s of Times Square in New York, uh, which was once, like, you know, kind of like, you know, a den of prostitution and, and strip clubs and, and, you know, brothels and, you know, and eventually how they cleaned it up and it became the Times Square that we all know today, which is, you know, full of you know, neon lights and theaters and it's whatever. Like Disneyland. Yeah, it's very much like a, yeah, it's like a, 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 an all-night Disneyland and uh, and how that became. And there's some really disturbing, I mean, full-on graphically disturbing imagery uh, about some of the just atrocities carried out on some of the women that lived in those areas and, and the women that served, that, that worked as prostitutes, things like that. So there's no right or wrong way to do it, you know what I mean? But what Edgar Wright does in this movie uh, is, is, is visually stunning – doesn't get graphic, overly graphic, I should say, and it's still disturbing in a lot of ways uh, in this movie. And and you kind of, when you start seeing through Sandy's eyes, it's such a sad story. And and then again, it culminates in her murder. And then again, uh, Ellie becomes obsessed with. At that point, it kind of becomes a ghost mystery. Like she's, she's haunted by these ghosts of the past, which are now showing up in her waking hours. She's at a library trying to like do research in newspapers, trying to find Sandy's identity, find out when she died and what was done about at the time. And while she's there, like the visions of these black and white ghosts from the past, which you can tell 
are the Johns that were visiting that were with Sandy when she was, uh, you know, serving as a prostitute. They're showing up at, at, and haunting, vividly haunting uh, Ellie, yeah. you know, during the day, and she's just terrified and again when you see the movie you will be too i mean it's pretty terrifying when she's like turning every corner and these black and white ghosts are all kind of creeping down upon her but again she's the only one seeing it so you don't know is this real or is it in her head Uh, and that's kind of a question you carry through almost to the end of the movie uh which again is part of the brilliance of this film yeah no it's very it's very good it's very intense um, like I said earlier, this movie isn't a horror movie until it is one. Um, when, when she starts seeing the ghosts of all these Johns, um, it's, it's highly disturbing. It's highly, uh, you know, terrifying and, and also thrilling. And I think, you know, thrilling is, 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 is kind of the fun version of horror. You know, it's like, well, that's, you know, wow, it's, it's intense to me and that's exciting and fun. And that's sort of why I think horror fanatics are into it is for the thrill. So there's a lot of thrills in this movie. Um, Damon, was there anything about this movie you didn't like? You know, there's one thing I, I, I wouldn't say I didn't like it. Uh, so, okay, let's just, before we get to our categories, let's talk about the twist ending. And again, we are in full on spoiler territory here. Uh, for anyone that just, you know, fast forwarding, whatever the case may be, we are about to spoil the ending of this movie. So be aware, um, the ending of the movie. So after everything that happens with, you know, uh, Ellie kind of, going through of you know trying to investigate this murder she comes to find out and again spoiler uh, she comes to find out that the the place where she lived which is where all this happened back in the 60s she's living in the room that Sandy once lived in she comes to find out that the woman who rented her the room Mrs. Collins her name is actually Alexandra Collins Remember, mm. Sandy is Alexandria. So uh, there's a really where where you where you figure this out is in the bar. She's met this kind of old timer who was apparently the ladies man. And she's convinced herself that is Jack grown to be an old man. Now he is now Jack of, a, of an older age. And she's convinced that Jack is the one that killed Sandy. And Jack is the one she needs to pin this murder on. But there's a moment in the bar. She ends up working in a bar. She talks to him and she more or less accuses him and says, you killed Sandy. And he says to her, no, Alex killed Sandy. And you're kind of like, what? That didn't really make any sense until you find out that Sandy eventually becomes Alexandria again. And again, we learn that through those many moments at the bar when she's had that, that really terrible, tragic scene where all the Johns are asking her name and she's saying Lexi, Alexis, you know, whatever. And they're saying, oh, that's a beautiful name. You remember her name is Alexandria. So Alexandra Collins, who is the landlady, is Sandy. Sandy didn't die. Sandy killed Jack in self-defense and then becomes almost a murderess and she ends up inviting these Johns to her room and she kills them and buries them under the floorboards and the walls. You know, she basically has turned her house into, you know, a, a, a pit of, of misery of all you killing all these men who were, who were ex- you know, exploiting her. And so that's what you find out at the end. So what I say, what I didn't like is, okay. What I like is that, I know this sounds terrible, but you know what I like is that Sandy didn't die. Sandy got her revenge. Sandy got the better of these scummy guys who were right. trying to explore. That part I liked. The part I didn't is that to cover up her crime, Sandy ends up you know, basically trying to kill Ellie. That's the one thing I didn't like because in that moment, I was kind of like, I get it, but I kind of hate it because like, 
I've been sympathetic to this character the entire time, and you're kind of like, man, what a tragic, truly tragic story. And in a weird way, you kind of root for her to kill these guys. <laughs> like, you're kind of yeah. like, you know what? Fuck these guys. Like, I'm glad she killed them. You know what I mean? But at the same time, when she turns on Ellie and basically tries to kill Ellie to cover up her crimes, that part I was kind of like, oh, man. Like, that just kind of took it in such a different direction where it's almost like, I didn't want her. To, I, I I just didn't want the character to go that direction. I guess I get it. I understand the the, the story part of it. I just didn't enjoy it. Well, you know, I, when you think about it from uh, Alexandria's uh, perspective, she would have been caught, and then she would have had to go to jail, and she doesn't want to do that. You know, she doesn't want so so. And and believe me, I think killing a bunch of guys eventually kind of uh, lets one of the screws loose in your head anyway. So I, I could sort of understand that turn in a way, but it does bum you out because you're both you're sympathetic to both characters, to to the Sandy character and the Ellie character. So you're like, well, it's kind of weird that one is going to turn on the other. Uh, it would be just as odd as if like Ellie all of a sudden like was like, oh, you're the killer. I'm going to kill you. Like that would have been weird, too. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, it was weird to have that turn. Um, and they kind of clean it up because I think ultimately, you know, uh, Alex Alexandria kind of comes to her senses and and like you know, stops trying to kill Ellie and 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 Ellie gets out of there. But the thing that kind of bugged me was backing up to the fact that why did Ellie have the wrong vision? And to, I don't know if I just missed that or not. But it's like, well, if Ellie's Ellie was having great visions up until a point, she could only see so much. I get that. But she got that vision really wrong to the point that she was seeing dead Sandy, stabbed wound Sandy. Now, that was coming from Ellie's mind. Yeah. But I'm like, I'm like, so I go, why did she go so hard in the wrong direction? Yeah, that's 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 a good point, because if these are you know ghost like visions, then why is she seeing the wrong vision? Unless, again, I, I the only thing I can I don't think I can fathom is because what we kind of come to find out with the Johns who are now haunting her they're not haunting her to like you know trying to kill her they're haunting her because they're basically unsettled spirits right yeah, they're living in this house and they're trying to get you know closure they're trying to you know, they're basically trying to get closure for them being murdered and I guess it's because Sandy is still alive maybe that's just the vision that like maybe that's the vision that Sandy had like that's what led her to eventually kill Jack was like she had the vision in her own head that she was gonna get killed this was only gonna end one way she mm. was gonna eventually go she was eventually gonna turn on Jack and Jack would kill her like there was no other way around that and so maybe that's the vision she was she was seeing what Alex saw or excuse me she was seeing what Sandy saw in those days where she was laying in that same bed and having that same vision the dream of basically the nightmare saying if i don't kill him he's going to kill me and so that's my only justification of thinking that's what she was seeing she was seeing she was the entire movie she's seeing herself through sandy's eyes so my right. guess is is that when she saw sandy getting killed that's what sandy saw of herself at that moment before she turned the tables on jack i would buy that that's a great explanation except for the part then where after that she sees dead sandy all over the place yeah again I, like i that said that kind of muddies it you know yeah. what i mean yeah but again that's I, again I, my only thought is is again she's seeing everything through sandy's eyes and, and again when you're and, and let's not forget when the 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 guy who she thinks is jack ends up being a cop who actually tried to help her uh back in the day 
Uh, and she that's the one she says her name is Alex. She tells him her name is Alex right. when he comes to visit her. And he says, I felt Alex, proud about that because I figured out in the flashback. I was like, oh, that's the cop. Yeah. And he's like, Alex, it, Alex killed Sandy. He knew it. He knew that Alex like that's what like Sandy was the ingenue. She was the hopeful girl, the stars in her eyes. And when he says Alex killed Sandy. He was saying Alex, you know, killed that person. So my thought is, is, and again, I'm over explaining what may not be explainable, but my thought is, is that when she watched Jack kill Sandy, what she's really watching is Alex killing Sandy. And when she sees dead Sandy all over the place, that is dead. Sandy died. Sandy stopped living at that moment. She died. Like when she became Alex, she died. So when the cop says Alex killed Sandy, he means it metaphorically, of course, but in her vision, that's what she's seeing. She's seeing Alex killed Sandy. Sandy's dead. Sandy's gone. The vision of this young girl who wanted to be a successful singer and entertainer, that's dead. That's gone. And so all that's left is Alexandria, who is this woman seeking revenge on all these men and seeking justice through her own means of killing them. That's my only other thought. Oh, my thought is how much did Edgar Wright pay you? Because that's a rather good explanation for something that didn't <laughs> exactly pop on screen. Um, but I mean, I, I think Edgar, I'm, is, Edgar, is I'm avail- Edgar, I'm available. If you need help, if you want to help me know the script, whatever, I'm here for you, buddy. <laughs> and you have a PayPal and a Venmo <laughs> and Edgar can send those over there right away. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I mean, that's actually a pretty good explanation. I don't know if the movie conveys it as clearly as that but i think but i, I buy that i do buy that yeah. I, do, I buy that explanation yeah all right let's uh, let's get into our categories because we got a lot to talk about here uh clearly you and i both enjoyed this movie even with our little flaws aside we, sure. we, we both really enjoyed this movie so let's kick things off as we do each and every week here on the show and talk about best performance now this is a fairly small cast despite it being you know a pretty big feeling movie it's actually a kind of an intimate cast there's not a lot of major characters so who is your favorite performance your best performance in last night in soho i mean it, it every performance was really good i mean down to the side characters it was really good down to the bullies and the friends and everybody like there's not a bad performance in the lot i could have picked anyone um but i went i went uh, i went with our main character ellie played by thomason mckenzie she is really, you know, I've seen her in quite a few movies. Um, I think of Leave No Trace, uh, Jojo Rabbit. Um, I think she was there's and there's a couple other films that she was in. I think she was in The King. Um, she's a really, really good actress. And uh, and she's rather magnetic on screen. And just she brings you into that world and her her mannerisms, her innocence, all of it comes across so well and painted so well. You are sucked in and you are and you're in her shoes. What she does so great as an actor is pull you into her perspective. And I and I, I that's what I was I was just so taken with what she did on screen because I, I was in her shoes for the entire ride. Yeah, she's fantastic. I mean, like I said, I, I just watched her a few weeks ago again in Jojo Rabbit which she's so brilliant in that movie and so just heartbreaking and just uh, she's amazing in that film uh and she does a great job here I mean she really is the star I mean she she works in so many levels in this movie from 
the girl moving to London with, you know, again, very much like Sandy stars in her eyes to, you Mm -hmm. know, kind of having that taken away from her right away to, you know, the kind of disturbing moments where she's seeing these visions and she's haunted all the way through the conclusion where she finds closure for Sandy and, and, you know, kind of reinvents her own life as a real fashion designer, which is what she wanted to do all along. Uh, Yeah, she's fantastic. And I'd be shocked shocked if, if she's not getting nominations in awards uh next year i mean i just i have a hard time believing that performance won't be recognized come you know award season next year um my best performance so again i always try to go in a different direction i easily could say thomas and mckenzie she was fantastic but i'm gonna go the other direction for the other main star of this movie and that's anya taylor joy uh, i make no bones about it i am a massive massive anya taylor joy fan uh, from from the witch to uh, just you know the queen's gambit last year was one of my favorite you know of this year one of my favorite one of my favorite uh, tv series it was amazing she was incredible in it uh and 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 seeing her in this she was just you know and again she was great in split i mean she's done a lot of things i really like uh but she was so good and then what really capped it off for me was there is a performance in this movie where she sings the patula clark song downtown which everyone should know if you saw the movie or if you've ever heard that song you know the downtown song sing it for us damon i will i will not (laughs) sing it for you but it's a very famous song anya taylor joy is the one singing that in the movie like yeah. she's one of those people where you're like, do you have enough talent? Do you have to make us all look bad? Like you're a, a phenomenal <laughs> actress and you can sing. Uh, that to me just caps it off. She did her own performances in the movie. And I'm like, damn, like she's incredibly talented. So that's why I gave her best performance. Cause not only can she act her ass off, she can also sing and she sings really damn good. She can sing great. Uh, she's she. By the way, she speaks like three or four languages, something like that. Like she really can do it all. She's someone who can absolutely do it all. But in this movie, she does it all, all too. I mean, she starts wide-eyed and and but also like you know confident and 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 to see the turn of her character and the subtlety through which she can do it. She she does a lot of it without saying a lot. Um, that's what's so impressive about Anya Taylor Joy is that she can emote very well just through facial expressions. There are a lot of actors who do it, but I think some overdo it or some do it in a way that is kind of distracting. With her, it's like you watch the character morph through her facial expressions. It's really incredible work. I've never seen her in something that I didn't think she was incredible in. Like she's just one of the greater greater talents that's out there today. So I, I, I couldn't be mad at that pick at all. Yeah. Uh, what about favorite character in this movie? Who is your favorite character in, in uh, last night in Soho? I was a sucker for John played by Michael Ajao. Um, John was this, uh, he was a fellow fashion student and he was just the good guy. I mean, he was truly altruistic, nice guy, did not mean a sing to harm a single hair on Ellie's head. He was there to be her friend. He was in love with her, but also like remained rather respectful. And, and whenever she was in trouble, like he was there for her as best he could be. Um, and I just, I, I liked him. It, it, not often do you get characters that don't have some flaw in there. He's one of those characters that's kind of flawless. Like he really was there as a good person, as a, as, as someone that Ellie could always depend on and lean on. And I liked that. 
He was the counterbalance to Jack of the 60s. You know, Jack totally. was this guy who kind of you know, wanted to try to be the nice guy, tried to be the, the good guy. But in reality, he was a complete sleaze. He was a complete scumbag sleaze. And John was the complete opposite. Of that. He was a good guy who was truly a good guy. He was just there to help Ellie and support her in any way he could. And even to his own detriment by the end of the movie. But like I said, you know, they always say you know, that like he's truly a nice guy. And, and again, and he, he's like I like that you know that kind of a character you need that kind of a character occasionally in a movie like this and I thought he was great I really liked him yeah he was he was fantastic really uh, a charming character now I'm cheating a bit for my favorite character because I also want to pay tribute to somebody here my okay. favorite my favorite character was Sandy slash Alexandria now the reason I say that is is because Sandy is a very layered character at the beginning of this movie when you see her in these visions. Again, she goes from that kind of wide-eyed ingenue to the girl who kind of has her dreams dashed out and she's kind of broken and you know, uh, beaten. I don't know a better way to say that. She, she loses her dreams. It all goes away. And, and again, that scene in that booth with the Johns, I know I keep coming back to that one, but that's just so tragic and sad. But then when she morphs into Mrs. Collins, when you re if you rewatch the movie a second time, which I fully intend on doing, uh, she's a great character. Like she's like, you know, typical old woman living in a house, you know, doesn't want guys in the house. She doesn't allow guys in the house. And she's very much like the old curmudgeonly woman, and the reason I say I'm going to also pick Alexandra here is because she is played in this movie by the great Diana Rigg. If you are a Game of Thrones fan, she, of course, played the Queen of Thorns. Uh, I want you to tell Cersei to, she, she knows it was me. Uh, this yeah. was her last film role before she tragically passed away um, right after filming this movie wrapped, actually. She finished this movie and passed away. I'm talking weeks later. Uh, she died in September 2020, and this was soon after this film wrapped uh, production. And uh, this was her last film role, but she was fantastic in Game of Thrones. Of course, that's where a lot of people will know her from uh, when she played, you know, several. When she played in several seasons of Game of Thrones, uh, but she was so good in that show, and I thought she did a fantastic job in this movie as well. And again, I would have just given her uh, best performance, but again, she wasn't in a lot of the movie. So, you know, Anya Taylor joy to me was the best performance but you know lady olena uh slash you know <laughs> alexandria uh collins uh diana rig she was fantastic so i'm cheating here because i wanted to also give credit to where credit's due to the great diana rig who is no longer with us but she killed it in her in in, in this role she was fantastic as miss collins slash alexandria slash sandy yeah, Diana Rigg is a rather charismatic or was a rather charismatic actor. Um, and she very much, even though she was this curmudgeonly old lady, you loved her the whole time. You loved everything that came out of her. Uh, she was she was just uh, she really gave it her all. It was really cool to to have her in this movie. Yeah. Let's talk about best scare, uh, because there are some good jump scares in this movie. Got to be honest. There's a couple of that definitely got me in the theater. Yeah. Uh, what was your best scare in Last Night in Soho? Uh, mine was rather innocent scare. So obviously, um, you know, we, we, we've talked about Ellie being this fish out of water in a, in a hustling and bustling South London. Um, and she is uh, running through the street and I think she's, she's running away in, in, in the scene that I'm thinking of, uh, from either, I think she might've been running away from who she believed was Jack. Um, he, he was just chasing her and she was kind of running across the street and this London cab, of course you're in South London, the London cabs are everywhere. 
Uh, I mean, it just the way it enters the frame. And again, that's top flight directing because you see that coming a mile away. You know, she's going to walk into the street and a, and a cab is going to come in front of her and nearly hit her. Um, but the but the timing, the pacing of that moment gets you and like the horn blares and everything. And and, and it, it made me jump. And I was like, damn, it got me like that. That's a genuine like which those those scenes never get me in movies. But the craftsmanship of this one just it got me right off guard. And I I, I had a full jump scare off of a, a cab almost hitting her. Yeah, that was a good one. That was definitely there was actually another there was actually a, a, another one. Yeah, we'll there's talk like about one that. other one. Yeah. There's a, one other cab scene that really does get you as well. Uh, my yeah, favorite my favorite scare uh, was actually uh, so when Ellie is first having her visions, uh, even when she's having good visions, she's woken up every morning by her alarm that you know basically wakes her up to go to school. And there's a great scene right when things kind of take a dark turn for her and, and she sees Sandy you know, kind of turning into a different person when she's, you know, had the stars in her eyes dashed out, so to speak. She wakes up to her alarm and then she rolls over and one of the Johns is there and he says, you don't think, you think you're awake? And then boom, the real alarm yeah. goes off and she actually wakes up. That freaked the fuck out of me in the movie theater. It got me. It reminded me, one of my favorite John Carpenter movies, uh, In the Mouth of Madness. If you've seen that movie, there's a great couple of moments there where Sam Neill's character thinks he's awake and he rolls over and he sees like, you know, the dead person or where it happens a couple of times in that movie and it gets you every time because it's really really well done when you think he's waking up and you realize he's still asleep and that was my favorite scary she rolls over and the guy's right there in bed and he's like you don't think you're awake do you i was like oh shit <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. That one definitely got me too. Yeah. All right, let's talk about best gore. Now, I got to be honest, uh there was a there was quite a bit of blood in this movie. Uh for for what is, you know, some people are saying not a horror movie. Uh so what is the best gore uh in this movie? And I know what your answer is, but I'd love to hear you describe this because this is the other cab moment. <laughs> yeah, we talked about, you know, the the hustle and bustle and then watch out for those London cabs. Um the the man that she believes is old Jack who turned out to be this cop. I think his name is Lindsay, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, her, he and her are getting into it uh, on the street. She's accused him of this crime, and he's clearly like, I don't know what you're talking about. I definitely didn't kill somebody back then. Uh, and he's not paying attention. The London cab hits him. I mean, but it hits him. And, I mean, <laughs> he slams into the windshield and goes flying and falls onto the ground, and he's sort of this bloody mess. And I think it wasn't so so graphic as as I mean it was graphic and bloody, but not like uh not like in let's say Halloween kills, which everything was incredibly gory. It wasn't gory, but it was very bloody and I was like, oh, it kind of felt real. It felt a little bit real in that moment. Yeah, when they do the close up on his face after he yeah. gets hit by the cab, they definitely show some 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 gore and some uh some blood right there. That was a great scene. And again, another great scare in that moment. When he gets hit, you're like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're like, watch out for these damn cats. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. scaring the shit out of me. Makes, me. makes me not want to cross the street in London, I'll tell you that much for sure. Uh, my best score was actually, uh, you know, kind of, again, the scene that, that played out uh, very graphically in, in Ellie's head, which was Sandy's death scene. When she's getting stabbed by Jack, you know, when Jack is trying to stab her and he cuts her throat and it gets really graphic and... You know, and I know I'm kind of leading into our next category, but she's very much bathed in red light throughout that. So it's blood along with the red light of that scene, uh, which is kind of the color palette of that scene. But it's just very graphic in that moment and very disturbing. Because, again, at that moment, you don't you think she's getting murdered. You know what I mean? So it's it, yeah. I think that ups the intensity 
of that of that gore because you're like damn like it's just it's it's scary it's disturbing and it's also very bloody this is i think the moment for those people who came to this movie going oh my i love scott pilgrim uh, i love edgar Wright. i'm gonna go see this movie and they're not horror people like that's a horror moment like for sure like that's your horror lock-in moment it happens i mean probably an hour into the movie but when it happens, I thought of those people in the audience who were not there for a horror movie <laughs> and were like, holy fucking shit. Like, she just got stabbed a bunch of fucking times. Like, it's pretty intense and it's very giallo. Yeah, very graphic. Very graphic. You know, there's no there's no pulling punches there. Very, very graphic. Very, very New York Ripper, if I will say so. Patrick. Oh, I can't wait till we release that episode. <laughs> Come on, Damon. Give the I people know. what they want. I know. It's coming. It's coming. All right. Uh, we mentioned several times uh, talking about this movie that th- there are a lot of comparisons, a lot of moments that feel like Argento in this movie. So what better way to pay homage to the great Dario Argento than saying what was our best Argento moment in this movie? I mean, I could have picked a million. I mean, I really, I really, it, this to me was a very big love letter to him, like sl- him slash like late sixties films and, and, you know, English sixties films and Argento stuff. There was tons to pick from. I picked the the stabbing moment that you just talked about. Um, but uh, when I think about it, I think about those, that moment where the blade is coming down. And of course in any great Giallo or Argento film, the killer uses a, a large knife and this was a large shiny chrome, shiny knife. And he, as he's stabbing her, there's this one moment where her eyes are reflected in the blade. And I was so, and it's so well done. I mean, it's done in this, you know, fantastical new way that uh, that that uh, Edgar Wright imagined it but it was so very much like a nod to the Argento days and it's just beautiful to witness yeah it's a really striking scene you know really very striking, striking scene, very visually striking yeah I would agree um, my favorite Argento moment there is a scene later in the movie when you know after Sandy's kind of made her transformation into uh you know into the woman she eventually becomes you know she becomes a prostitute she's being taken advantage of and she finally decides to rebel against jack or through you know ellie she decides to rebel against jack and she tries to run away from jack through this club and she keeps ducking in and every room has a different horrific atrocity being carried out you know one woman is being you know basically sexually abused another woman is being given drugs you know, it, and and it, it's all in the color palette of Argento. Every room, like the room with the drugs, is I think it's like a blue room, and then there's the red room and purple, and all these right. different colors. And she's running through this club, and you see Jack kind of coming after her, kind of slowly coming after, her, almost like a slasher film. And she's trying to get away from him, and it just feels like the the walls are closing in on her. And that very much to me feels like an Argento moment. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I want to give an honorable mention to to. Uh, the staircase scene early on when Ellie is is sort of following, you know, she first meets Sandy in this vision and she's sort of just dazzled by her and following her around through refle- through all these different reflections in the club. There's a staircase scene where the where the mirror that runs along the staircase is kind of segmented. So it creates multiple Ellie's in the in the uh, reflection that are following her down the staircase. And I was like, wow, that is like argento on acid like it was so incredibly cool that i couldn't not mention that moment if you hadn't mentioned it yeah that was a good one as well that was very good all right so now one thing we've talked about quite a bit during this podcast patrick is 
you know, the kind of idea that, you know, this horror movie isn't a horror movie. There's going to be those hardcore horror people who are going to say this isn't a horror film. And I've said many, many times on this show, Patrick, I'm inclusive. I want more people to be considered horror films because I want more people to enjoy horror. I want someone who says, that's a horror movie? Yeah. Oh, wow. I like that movie. I kind of enjoy inviting them in to, you know, to the club. I want more people in our club, Patrick. Uh, yeah, so let's I, not chase away the likes of Thomas and McKenzie, Anya Taylor-Joy, Matt Smith, and, and Edgar Wright. Like, let's bring them into our club, guys. Yes, please, please. So here's a great topic, and, and kudos to, to, to the great Patrick here for coming up with this topic. Uh, thank you. Our favorite horror movie that's not a horror movie. So... Uh, Patrick, I'll allow you as the creator of this particular topic to go first. What is your favorite horror movie that's not a horror movie? Uh, this actually occurred to me the other day, and it just so happened to the synchronicity it happened to line up with with tonight's topic. Um, but I mentioned this on Clubhouse because we were talking about our, our favorite Halloween horror films. Um, my favorite horror movie that's not a horror movie is Scrooged. With Bill Murray. <laughs> okay. It's, okay. First of all, it's a Christmas movie. <laughs> but the moments in that movie that are horrific are downright horrific. And there's a lot of them. There's many, many moments in this movie that are terribly disturbing. To the point that I remember having it on, and I think I, my oldest son was like around four at the time. And it's that scene where Bill Murray is in is in the, the CEO's office and that, that golfing zombie comes back. The guy yeah. who used to run the company. And I was like, this is fucking intense. And like he push he pushes Bill Murray through the glass in the uh, of the of the uh, of the high rise. And like his arm is rotting off and his teeth are black. And I was like, Jesus Christ. And that's just one moment. There are other moments. There are frozen to death homeless people. There's uh, there's literally the specter of death later on in the film. There's a scene with Bill Murray inside a coffin with his feet on fire as he's being cremated. Now that I tell you, if you've never seen Scrooge, you're like, that's the fucking darkest movie you've ever. I, like, what the fuck are you talking about? That's yeah. that's definitely a horror movie. I'm telling you, it's a comedy Christmas movie. And this stuff is in that movie. And to me, that's my best horror movie. That's not a horror movie. You know, I got to say, I don't think I would have thought of that. I definitely would not have thought of that. That is definitely not what I would have come up with when you said best horror <laughs> movie that's not a horror movie. Kudos, because I definitely would not have thought of that. I was racking my brain all day thinking of different <laughs> ideas, like what would I consider a horror movie? Because I've actually said uh, on this podcast several, I'll come to back to it in a second, but I've said several times movies that a lot of people wouldn't consider horror movies that I do consider a horror movie. Scrooge is not on that list. I definitely would not have thought of that. But when you say it like that, you're right. There are some really horrific elements in that movie, so that's true. Good pull, man. That's a ah, that's a that's you. a that's an intro. I definitely did not see that coming. I actually because one thing we've talked about a lot in this show, and I brought this up several times. This is not my pick, by the way, but this is one that everyone will argue about: is Silence of the Lambs. That's probably the right. most iconic horror movie. That's not a horror movie. People say it's not really horror. I say it is. It's a horror. It's scary. There are some oh, yeah. freaking terrifying moments in that movie. It's about a serial killer. Just because it's got Oscars out the ass and you know and 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 you know jody foster and and anthony hopkins and all the great actors who are in that doesn't mean it's not a horror movie it's a horror movie i don't care how many ways you slice it uh or bite it in the hannibal lecter case uh it is a horror movie i'm sorry i'm not going to take that out of the category seven
Seven is a horror movie. I don't care how many ways you slice it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just like the woman who sliced off her own, who sliced off her nose. Uh, Seven is a horror movie. So those are the kind of serial killer movies that a lot of people will say they're cop dramas or they're serial killer movies. They're not horror movies. I would argue they are horror movies. So I had to dig a little deeper, Patrick. And uh, one movie I came up with today, this is not my favorite. I'm going to bring it up again. Again, kind of horrific, but not a horror movie, is Contagion. That got a lot of play last year nice. because of the pandemic. But my favorite horror movie that is not a horror movie, Blue Velvet ah, by the great David Lynch. Go. And the reason I say that is it's not a horror movie. It is not. It is. There are some <laughs> scary elements. It is not a horror movie. It's a weird mind fuck of a movie. Uh, it is brilliant. Uh, you know, when you think about Isabella Rossellini and, and Kyle MacLachlan, but of course the one really horror element of it all is the great Dennis Hopper as Frank Booth. That guy is fucking terrifying, man. That guy is as scary as you can get without being Freddy Krueger or Jason or Michael Myers. Frank Booth is fucking terrifying. That dude is so off his rocker on so many drugs, whatever it is, he's huffing through that face mask. That dude is off his rocker and he is straight up terrifying. That being said, Blue Velvet is not a horror movie. I would not argue. There's no one's going to argue with me and say it's a horror movie. It's not. It's it's a it's a weird mind fuck of a thriller, but it's not a horror movie. But Frank Booth is scary as shit. <laughs> that really makes me think of now. Now I'm like on the topic all of a sudden. Now I'm thinking of Sexy Beast, and I'm thinking of Ben Kingsley in oh, Sexy yeah. Beast. Great, great. He yeah. is absolutely terrifying like and all he's doing is standing in that kitchen going yes yes no 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 and you're like what the fuck what the fuck is going on right now i'm so fucking scared of this guy like absolute without any horror happening at all he's just absolutely terrifying so i i'm vibing with that damon yeah big time. I, i'm a big i i know i've said it a million times i'm a massive david lynch fan and blue velvet is probably my favorite of all his films uh, you know, Dennis, Dennis Hopper, I think either won or was nominated for an Oscar for that role. I can't remember if he won or if he just got nominated, but I know he got nominated. Uh, great. And it's just like, it's a, it's a really screwed up, really, you know, kind of a head, you know, and that's all David Lynch's movies. You know, if you're watching David Lynch, you're not in it because you think you're going to get a totally linear story that you're not going to feel like you just walked out of a bad acid trip when you get done watching the movie. That's what David Lynch does. Uh, but I love Blue Velvet, but it's not a horror movie. But Frank Booth as a character is straight out of a horror movie. You know what I mean? So that that's my yeah. pick. Uh, I love Blue Velvet. I love that character. Not a horror movie. Great horror character, though. Nice pick. I like your pick. Yeah. Left field picks are good. Yeah, I like. I had, to, I had to rack my brain for that one for a while today because I was because like every time I tried to justify another one, I'd say, you know what? No, that is a horror movie. Screw that. That is a horror movie. I mean, some and, people debate that Alien is not a horror movie, and yeah, by the way, it's a horror movie. It is a horror movie. It is. You know what? I, you know what? I just watched the other night, which is very much in the vein of of, uh, of Contagion, is Outbreak. I love Outbreak. It's a really yes. cheesy. You know, it's kind of a cheesy movie at moments, and it's got some cheesy moments, but it's not a horror movie. I definitely wouldn't call it a horror movie, but it's got some horrific elements to it, like I said, and I, I think that's I, the where... The dread element is massive. In, yeah, and... In, 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 and, and very in much a, like Contagion. In, in, yeah, Outbreak, sorry. Yeah, and very much like Contagion. That, like, again, feels all too real now because we just, we're, yeah. we're still living through a pandemic. Uh, but yeah, like Contagion, I wouldn't call it a horror movie, but there's some scare myths, especially now. I mean, anyone who didn't think that movie was scary like eight years ago, whenever it came out, watch it now after the pandemic and trust me, you will think it's terrifying. Uh, oh, but yeah, like, I don't consider it a horror movie. Great movie, but I had to go a little deeper. So I had to go to Blue Velvet for this pick, so... 
Oh, nice pick. Yeah. So, all right, Patrick, let's get out of here on our favorite topic, our last topic, our topic for every episode, which is at the end of the day, we are a horror movie podcast. We're here to talk about scary movies. So, Patrick, at the end of the day, last night in Soho, is it scary? You know, Damon, I'm going to say no, it's not scary. Now, the crazy part is, is that there are moments in this movie that are genuinely scary. Um, it's not to me. I mean, it didn't haunt me or scare me or or freak me out in, on any on any sustained level. But it is a damn, damn amazing film. And uh, like you got to go see it. Like, who cares if it's scary or not? Go see the movie. It's damn fine. Yeah, so uh, I actually, I'm going to disagree. I'm going to say it is scary, not terrifying. It's not as kind of scary movie you're going to sit down and sit on the edge of your seat from the start to the finish or anything like that. But I actually do think it is scary enough to call this scary movie. And the reason I say that is, is because, again, sometimes I have to kind of pull back a little bit when I judge this category because you and I are so desensitized to horror films, that even like films that people would say, oh, my God, that scared the living crap out of me. You and I would be like, yeah, all right, you know, whatever. Oh, true. Yeah. So I kind of pull back and there's enough, you know, good jump scares. There's enough good scary moments. And again, if you if people are into ghost stories, there's a lot of that element of like the kind of creepy the black and white ghosts I mentioned, the murder scenes, you know, there's enough, there's enough elements of this that I would call it a scary movie. Is it truly terrifying? Is it, you know, is it the movie that's going to keep you up at night or anything? No, it's not that kind of movie, but I would still consider it a pretty decent scary movie. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's tough for me because I even think about, and we've talked about this before that Shaun of the dead is borderline, not scary. Like yeah. it's a great, zombie film it's damn funny it's really well put together it's also an edgar wright movie how about that um but is it even scary not really but it had way more horror elements like i could look at that one and go well it has all the horror elements you're looking for in a horror movie i don't see that necessarily with last night in soho but there i mean like the intensity of like all those ghosts of the Johns that are living in the house. That's it. That's rather intense. And for somebody who doesn't watch horror, I bet that would freak some people out. Yeah. And there's, like I said, there's enough good jump scares there. Like I said, there's a couple of little there's certainly, I, It got me. I'm not going to say it didn't. Yeah. It got me a couple of times. So when, when you get me a couple of times and there's, you know, enough other elements dotted throughout the movie, I can say, yeah, there's enough there that I would call it scary. And to agree with you on your final point, which is this, the movie is freaking awesome. I mean, I love it the is. movie. Uh, I have a feeling it's going to go down as one of my favorite movies of the year when it's all said and done. Uh, we still got a couple months left to go in the year, so we got to see what else comes out. And and horror, one of the great things about horror is is there's a you know there's always a lot of horror, and not all of it goes in the theater. So I'm sure there's going to be some stuff coming out on Shutter. Hey Shutter. Uh, hey Shutter. There's going to be some stuff on Amazon, Netflix. Netflix has actually been killing this year. I mm -hmm. mean, you know. Fear Street, you know, which again, I raved about that when we did a review on that one. Uh, Netflix has actually come up with some really good stuff this year. So, um, yeah, I would say there's going to, I think there's a chance we could have a couple more, you know, dark horse entries into our horror, uh, best of horror, which by the way, we will be doing our best of horror this year. We did one last year, which is one of our biggest episodes of the year for, I think for obvious reasons, people like to, people love best of lists. And uh, we're yeah. going to do another one this year, Patrick and I, before the January 1st, we will be doing our best of horror for 2021. And we will go into our top. We did top five last year. We're going to do top 10 this year. Maybe we do top 10 this year. I mean, I saw a damn shitload of movies this year. I did too. I did too. I was, I realized that when I was going back to our past episodes the other day, I was like, we reviewed a lot of movies this year. 
so yeah, I and I'm going to we- try this year to actually have movies that came out in 2021. Unlike my <laughs> last one, movies from the 1980s in it. <laughs> well, we will get it figured out. Uh, all right, folks, we're going to get out of here. Obviously, want to say a big thank you to each and every one of you that tunes into Rewind to the Living Dead from week to week. Uh, make sure you are subscribing to us on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and you can always find the uh, podcast over on my website, nerdcoremovement.com. You got questions, comments, anything you want us to know about the show, movies you want us to review, please make sure you hit us up on Twitter. Uh, I am at Damon Martin, and you are? At Director Patrick. And do not forget, you can also hit us up at our email address if you have a movie, a comment, a question about the show. Please hit us up at our email address, which is? RotLivingDead, R-O-T, LivingDead, at gmail.com. Email us if you're the emailing type. Exactly. All right, folks, we're going to get out of here. We obviously appreciate everyone tuning in. We will see you next week for another edition of Rewind of the Living Dead. We'll see you then. Thanks for tuning in. Peace.